Hi, and welcome back to another Cliché Podcast. This episode will be a follow-up to the emergency episode titled, Ignorance is the Parent of Fear. In that episode, myself and a panel of five allies talked about xenophobia and the increase of hate crimes against East Asians since COVID-19. Now, this episode will differ because it will include more concrete strategies on what to do, and we will be diving into the difficult questions from the previous episode that wasn't answered to its fullest. Today I have with me Teresa Wupa. She's from Act to End Racism. I will get her to explain more about what Act to End Racism is. Before I start, I want to introduce her and all her accomplishments, which was a lot. (laughs) I googled her and there was so much, so I'm very humbled to be able to interview her. I'll start with the fact that Ms. Wupa is the first trustee and chair of Calgary Board of Education of Asian-Canadian Descent from 1995 to 1999 and the first female member of the Legislative Assembly of Alberta and Cabinet Minister of Asian-Canadian Descent from 2008 to 2015. Aside from that, she's very active in her community, which is Calgary. For 40 years, she has founded seven organizations, including Asian Heritage Foundation, the ACCT Foundation, the Ethnocultural Council of Calgary, and the Calgary Chinese Community Services Association, as well as served over 30 committees and boards at local, provincial, and national levels. So let's welcome Teresa Wupa. I, w- I wish I had a applause. <laughs> insert applause. Well, thank you for the kind introduction. Oh, thank you for being here. Could you be able to explain to my audience what Act to End Racism is, how it came about? Essentially, as we all know now, there have been rising anti-Asian sentiment and and racist incidents in the country. I started receiving phone calls from colleagues locally here in Calgary, as well as from other parts of the country, like British Columbia and Quebec and other places. Essentially looking, asking, what are people doing? We need to do something. Who is doing what? So I decided to convene a meeting. On April the 16th, I convened a meeting with people from different Asian communities, primarily East Asian, Southeast Asian. Actually, that particular meeting, we had 70 people on Zoom that night. And uh, so it was recognized that there's a need to come together and uh, to form a collective voice. uh, A more formalized kind of network was formed in 10 days, so by April the 26th. And members of the network felt very strongly that the first action is a communicate. And uh, because people felt that the people in the impacted community needed to hear and receive assurance from our leaders in the country that they actually be aware of what's happening, they acknowledge what's happening, and also uh, to give people assurance that this is unacceptable, it's un-Canadian, people should be respected, and they should actually feel safe, you know, to reinforce our our fundamental values as a people, as a country. So we uh, issued a press release on April the 27th. And of course, it's not only the effort of the the Act to End Racism uh, Network, but also many other groups across the country. The Prime Minister responded on April the 28th in his uh, daily briefing, followed by acknowledgement by the Premier of British Columbia, the business leaders, the police chief in British Columbia, as well as a number of human rights commissions, like from Nova Scotia, Montreal, uh, uh, Quebec, 
I think Manitoba as well and Alberta. And then, of course, uh, the media have been uh, reporting, I think, fairly regularly, unfortunately, with the incidents, uh, high profile incidents that's been happening. So I think that there's a greater awareness. But at the same time, lots and lots of questions from people. We hear it. We get asked. You see it from online comments. You know, is this real? Is it really happening? Is it really that bad? Is yeah. it really happening that frequently? Does, does it really hurt? You know, why don't you just suck it up? <laughs> you know, so uh, so lots of questions still while awareness is being raised. I agree with that. Even within the East Asian community itself, I've talked to other people about the increase in hate crimes and they aren't aware of any of it because I don't think unless it's a high profile, it's not going to be publicized. I must say, amazing that this all came together in a span of 10 days, and it really shows how unified across Canada from BC to Nova Scotia. One thing that I have a question about was on the website, under your objectives, because you have four of them, uh, the fourth one is to put pressure on government to exercise their responsibility to protect the safety and security of all Canadians. We want to clear statements issued by government leaders against racism in all forms and at all levels, including overt racism, subtle racism, and organized hate. On a systemic level, we want to provide evidence-based policy and program recommendations to address anti-racism. So I'm wondering for the systemic level to provide um, evidence-based policy and program recommendations, what does that look like? Well, in part, it starts with raising awareness, having people meaningfully engaged, naming the issue, and uh, no acknowledging it happens, that we have shared responsibilities. That is not a problem for the impacted community alone. The fact that we actually have racism, which is associated with people putting their prejudice, the generalization they have into action, and then supported by power. And that power is systemic, you know, it's supported by the ideology, the policies and practices and norms and beliefs in um, institutions. So I think that it's um, important that we actually engage in real dialogue, meaningful dialogue, and uh, and convey and reinforce that uh, our community right now needs effective protection from our institutions. Statistic Canada 2016 actually identified Chinese Canadian women have the lowest level of trust with our public institution. From some of the preliminary cursory data that our group, the BC group and others have collected so far, it's still early, very early, right? Just been launched about two weeks ago, 10 days ago. We are seeing actually over three quarter of those reported the incidents are women. But then we know that traditionally, you know, whether it's indigenous people, women, sexism and or racism are, are hugely underreported. And uh, so we know that our community currently do not have the awareness and understanding on the benefits and the importance of reporting incidents. So how do you know this is supposed to be the job of our institutions? They exist to provide protection and support and education to 100 percent of Canadians. Right now, they don't possess all the competency they have to actually serve a very diverse citizenry. So we have to work together. So I think that's a part of the objective. 
But uh, part of what we're also trying to convey to our community about reporting, one is it's good for them personally, because we have to all know that racism, encountering a, a racist incident is traumatic. I just listened to a global news report today with some of one of the anchor who is of Chinese descent, forgot her name right now, but um, she became very emotional. And these are things that happened to her long time ago. When I discovered racism, actually, it was in a room full of social workers, good people. Uh, I cried for two days and I didn't know what hit me at that time. It's very hurtful. And we all have to actually acknowledge that so that we can help other people who are experiencing it, especially our young people. So I think that um, we have to understand the importance of reporting. And the other benefit of reporting is then we have the data. Yes. We can actually demonstrate to institutions, but also we can learn from it because there's so much learning we still all have to do. So, so that's what we mean by we need to collect data. We want to have evidence-based discussion and also policy discussion. We actually want at some point to have policy discussion with a public representative uh, so that we can work together to improve things in a system, you know, through systemic change. That's what I love about Act to End Racism. You are promoting reporting, first of all, and you're keeping track of it because for the previous episode I did when I was researching, a lot of the statistics I found were from the United States. And it was hard to find statistics for Canada. And even when I did, it, like you said, the underreporting, how accurate are these numbers? So I think the fact that Act to End Racism is pushing people to report is helping, like you said, the evidence base there to be able to make policy changes. And I think within the East Asian, or at least I'm Chinese, so within the Chinese community, what I notice is kind of um, a survival mentality. Yes. Mm -hmm. So if you encounter something, you don't talk about it. You take it. Yeah, because you're trying to assimilate. You're not trying to cause problems. You're trying to be the, quote, model minority, which isn't actually a real thing. Yeah. In my opinion. But it's a a huge challenge for us because it's been silencing us. Yes. uh, Limiting us. And I think the silence and effect have to be addressed. Essentially, is is false weathering. It is used to do the othering to separate all the impacted groups by by racism. Uh, and silencing us. You should you you are doing so much better than other racialized groups, and sometimes even the majority. And uh, therefore, you should not have anything to complain about. But we have kids who are not finishing school. We have kids who've been who are being bullied. We're very concerned about kids being bullied uh, when things do start to open up. We have to challenge some of these stereotypes that have become so deeply, you know, ingrained now. So, yeah, but after so many decades, after that term had been coined, right, in the, in the late 60s, right? Yeah. Even in textbooks, even in social work textbooks, it's talked about now as something that's real. <laughs> yeah. And um, I spent the last two years developing a an identity culture focused leadership program. I think um, many of our parents in the uh, East Asian community, if even not the broader Asian community, and we are stuck at level two of the Maslow's hierarchy of need because our parents and our previous generations all came to improve the economic well-being of the family. And so once they have shelter, 
they meet the physical needs and feel Canada is generally a safe country. Then they became satisfied and they are actually telling the children to be satisfied. Yes. <laughs> right? Not to seek full belonging, right? Full citizenship, equality, right? Yeah. So we have to address those issues. Anecdotally, I definitely relate to that. <laughs> that resounds to my life. And yeah, I, I agree. I have concerns about the children too, when school starts to return and they're going back. Because even with um, when SARS was a thing and I was in school, I experienced people wondering if I had it, even though I had went to school with my peers for all these years. But it doesn't matter to them because it's kind of a learned behavior or whatever they hear at home from their parents. It's modeled. So when yeah, they see I, that I'm different, they're going to comment. Yeah. And I do have some tough, I think they're tough questions to get into. From the previous episode with my allies, we talked about how the president of the United States called COVID-19 the Chinese virus, but he denounced those statements. But we were discussing how how is it racist calling it the Chinese virus if that's where it originated from? And obviously we all agreed that it was racist and it sparked xenophobia. But in terms of, say, if we're going about our daily lives and I'm not talking to a colleague or someone who views things the same way that I do, if someone were to say that to me, I don't know how I could explain it fully. Do you know what I mean? Like, if someone were to say that to you, Teresa, how would you respond? So the thing is, uh, I think that we have to learn from the advancement of technology and also from history, because we have now learned that a lot of the previously named viruses and pandemic actually later we found that they actually did not originate from those countries but that's also besides the point but the thing is we have to understand that virus have no boundary and we also have to acknowledge that science is um, constantly informing us to find that so-called truth so I, I don't think that is is helpful to actually judge uh, and ex as it also, you know, especially when we now live in a very globalized world, globalized, not only shortening the distance, the physical distance between people, but also we are more connected. And uh, we should know that that kind of naming is not scientific. It's not helpful. It's not helpful for us as, as human beings, as human communities. Then why do we want to choose it? And, and I think that we also have to apply some critical thinking. When people do that, what is what is the objective? Who is being benefited and who is being disadvantaged by people doing that? There's no social benefit to do that. And there's a lot of political agenda behind it. So I think that it calls for all of us to be actually more critical uh, when we actually receive these kind of message that we actually do some critical thinking and think about why do people choose to do that? when there's no meaning, really, no benefit of doing that. So we, we have to help our citizens to become more informed, to have this kind of critical thinking and skills so that we can all make better informed decisions and choices. It doesn't advance human connections. That's a very good point. To get to the root of it and think why, I definitely agree that it's political agenda. <laughs> um, yeah. Another question that we got into in the episode is my the, my allies notice that in her life or in her community, 
that the different ethnic cultural groups would always stick to one another because that's their comfort. And she was wondering how we could get various ethnic groups to mingle with one another when, as humans, naturally, we want to stick to what we're comfortable with. You know, part of my experience is I started the Asian Heritage Foundation here in Calgary, you know, to actually so-called celebrate Asian Heritage Month, but really to, to facilitate social change through especially the arts and culture and other means, engagement with, with the public institutions. Through that work, I was able to work with colleagues from different Asian communities to actually connect and conducted two major consultations, one in 2006, one in 2016. The one in 2016 was with 66 Asian Canadian organizations, about 300 people, 15 consultation sessions. And what I learned from that is, first of all, people have a very strong desire and interest to actually connect with other people. The fact that so many of the ethnocultural community who are active, not just leaders, you know, people who are active, a lot of these women who just keep doing things, making things happen, they do it because they want other people to have a better understanding of their culture. They want their own, that the next generation to have a greater appreciation of their heritage, right? So, so a lot of the work they do innately is want, they want to share. They want to, to connect with other people. I heard someone from the Korean community said that we have to break the solitude amongst people. We are, I also heard people say, well, I wasn't quite sure I was supposed to go to other people's events. Oh, yes. So I think that we have to actually start to by communicating, break some of those incorrect assumptions and also to facilitate, to create opportunities where people can actually talk to each other and hear each other so that people actually can, can see the creativity that could actually come out of this kind of connections. And, you know, there's tremendous opportunity for Canadians to co-create by coming together, different people, diverse groups of people coming together. So I think that the, we need to help to, to spark some of those conversations, spark some of those thinking. I think most people would respond because people want to. They just don't know whether they're supposed to. They don't have the opportunity mm -hmm. to. So organizations like Asian Heritage Foundation have been able to actually create those opportunities, create those connections, but also sustain and support those connections. It requires resources. It requires work. Yeah. And any you know, social change, institutional change, you have to actually start with some kind of organizational capacity. So sometimes it's hard for our communities to actually to go beyond the, the activities they organize because we are still at the bottom of the totem pole of this country. In many parts of this country, we have no access to resources. When our groups don't have resources to, uh, to resources, they have no organizational capacity so that they and members of the community can participate informal and informal specific activities yeah and from there you can talk about systemic change from there you can actually engage the public and raise awareness and so that because most canadians are good people but they don't know the trauma of racism they don't know the real harm of racism so that they take part in addressing this issue and challenge it right but without organizational capacity without those training learning opportunity we cannot get to the public awareness and engagement and talk about policy so we have to start from somewhere, right? So a good way to start at the community level would be inviting members of other ethnic cultural groups to come in and to say an arts-based event and things like that. Yeah, that's, that's what we've been doing. Uh, in the process, we support community-based activities, fostering of uh, awareness and appreciation of one's cultural heritage, sharing but also constantly advancing it to institutional engagement. 
So why is it that our concert hall only play Euro Canadian, a uh, Euro European based music? Mm-hmm. Yeah, a diverse country. So it should no longer surprise people that oh my orchestra can play different kinds of music. And when they do, it's a great experience for the musicians. They expand their audience base, and people feel belong. And people actually get to visit their concert hall for the first time in in their life in Canada. So you know. Activities like that can break different grounds, can create different kind of experience and connections. But we always have to be mindful that we don't stay doing the same thing, the cross-cultural activity, the cross-cultural understanding, that we all constantly have to be mindful. We have to advance to the systemic level, the institutional engagement and institutional change level, right? So we just have to keep doing, but always so advance. So how would the institutional... Level approach look like would that be policy change in practices change in programming uh, change in how they allocate resources how they、mm. organize that, how they market how they reach the the communities they have not reached but I think that、uh, we also have to from time to time critically reflect community have a strong desire to to integrate to be a part of you know the iconic institutions because that's when we feel that we are. All citizens that we belong and our culture is integrated, right? But I would say, you know, after what,、uh, how many years now? I started Asian Heritage Foundation two thousand, so it's twenty years. We've been knocking on a lot of institutional doors. <laughs>、uh, they came out to play, but we have not been really invited in yet. So、uh-huh. still some way to go. Well, thank you for all the work that you've been doing, and even. Because of COVID nineteen and and seeing all the hate crimes against East Asians wasn't sitting very well with myself, which is why I recorded the original episode with my panel of allies.、Um, we briefly touched upon the topic of how Africans were being treated in China in the episode, but we didn't really get into it. My whole thing is when I'm trying to discuss hate crimes against East Asians, and someone were to bring up, well, what about how Africans are being treated in China? I, <laughs> in a way, it kind of makes me feel like I'm in a difficult position on how to respond because obviously I don't agree with how they're being treated over there, but I also don't agree with how East Asians are being treated over here. So, how would you respond to that, Teresa? Well, I would say that racism is racism. Racism is wrong. Racism is hurtful. It is harmful. Harmful not only to the impacted individual, it's harmful to the community, to communities, and our society as a whole. It makes us less as a people, as a country. So it's wrong everywhere. It's probably everywhere in this world as well, because racism is about power, right? So those who are of the dominant membership, dominant group, can actually act out the discrimination and prejudice. And be supported by policies and ideology and practices. So the dominant group in any country have the potential to mistreat the minority. So it, wherever that happens is wrong, right? I think there's more work for all of us to do to actually really have a better understanding about the harm of racism, about the you know there's even economic harm, right? But it's personal harm. It scars people. It, it prevents them from fully, you know, participate and contribute to society. Even sometimes, the way I look at it is, racism is racism is wrong wherever it happens.、Yeah. Uh, but at, at this point in time, when people ask me that question or ask people of 
is Asian that question? I actually, I have a question. Uh, what is your assumption? I mean, you know, I've lived in this country for almost 50 years now. I'm definitely Canadian, more Canadian than my Chinese-ness. So when, when we actually want to talk about what's happening in Canada today, why are you asking me that question? What is your assumption that I, I'm a foreigner? Are you actually, do you actually have that stereotype of us being perpetual foreigners? Mm. So I think that engaging in a conversation broadly about racism is healthy, is important, but I also want to apply that critical thinking. What is your assumption here? What is the context here? I've never lived in China. Actually, I was asked that question recently and I was surprised. It's not that I don't want to talk about racism. There's so much that we need to talk about how we treat each other, even in Canada. We have work to do. Uh, I was actually, I, I finished my social work training. By that time, I was actually taking an anti-racism training at that time from United Way. So I did a, a little exercise on stereotyping. And that actually stayed with me for a very long time. I thought that as a social worker, someone who really turned out to dedicate most of my life doing community work, uh, I hold some deep-seated stereotype toward Indigenous Canadians. What was the exercise? I can't remember that. <laughs> but bias, I, was, I have taken the implicit bias training as well a, a few mm-hmm. years back. So I think it's important for all of us to, to actually work, or everybody, to work on raising self-awareness. Because we are not self-aware, then we actually don't know our, our preconceived ideas, our own assumptions about people. We might think that we're nice people. We see a lot of nice people and then they actually say something that just shocks mm. you. So I think that we all have those prejudices and actually it's healthy. It's important that actually we reveal it and uh, so that we are aware that we have it. And then we work on changing. And the way I kind of feel about it too is if I'm talking about one issue and someone responds with bringing up another issue, I'm thinking, well, I'm talking about Canada or I'm talking about North America right now. Not to say that that's not terrible because 100%, I I think that's unjust. But I'm wondering, what is the purpose of this individual responding with that? Are they trying to undermine what I'm saying or deflect? Yeah, and then the other is we have to actually really have some conversation to dispel some of the stereotypes that have been applied to us as a social group in Canada. I think concept of perpetual foreigner is something that I think that warrants a, some kind of discussion. Why is that, that, you know, as minorities, I don't know if you heard this because I'm of Chinese descent. So I've heard this from the Chinese community. They would call every white person a Canadian. That person may have just got off the plane. And because that person is white, Chinese people call them Canadians. And then they sometimes don't even call themselves Canadian. They talk to the kids like, well, you know, just don't rock the boat. You're living in somebody else's country. So I think that we actually have to really think about a lot of those things and really learn our history. I realized that part of what sustain me, sometimes empower me, is actually I know my, my family history that my family have six generations in Canada now, even though I was not even born here. I, I came to this country, cannot speak English. But my great-grandfathers both came to this continent and contributed. Oh, wow. So under very difficult circumstances, right? So the fact that I know that uh, my family, our people, have participated and contributed to this country 
it actually gives you a sense of capacity. Mm. So, uh, so when people constantly try to think that you have to pay extra due because you're a newcomer, when you're not, constantly try to place you as of the other, right? As an yeah. outside, really, right? When you're actually born, raised here, it, it just minimizes you. So you have to actually pick yourself up. Learning the history is part of it. Knowing your community history is part of it. We've been here for 160 years. You know, Japanese Canadian have. The Filipino have been here for 100 years. People constantly think that we're new. Yeah. I think that we need to actually do our own homework and challenge those views and find ways. I, I even suggest to people practice ways because sometimes when these 10 things come up, you'll be reacting and, uh, and you don't know what is the most effective things to say. So if you actually practice ahead of time, then you can actually turn it into a, a learning moment. I guess aside from discussions, which discussion is very important because it brings awareness, but aside from that with the hate crimes related to COVID-19, what, what are some action steps that people can take? And I'm just talking about a regular citizen, maybe not in politics, like what kind of action steps can they take? Well, there's a lot of uh, bystander training now. I think various people have developed anti-discrimination response, their tools and training. Some are calling them bystanders training, people making it more accessible now through webinar. I think those are useful because we don't know what to do because it's often racist incidents happen when we don't expect it. When we become a bystander or witness, it's often at a more public place. And you don't know what is appropriate to say. And it's uncomfortable for everyone. When, when someone behaves that way, bully people that way, humiliate people that way, everyone feels uncomfortable. So what this kind of training does is they actually prepare you for that kind of situation. Through that kind of mental preparedness, in fact, the training I took many years ago now from Dr. Ishiyama is he had developed cue cards. Actually, the Act 2 uh, and Racism, we will be putting these tools onto our website. In fact, I just engaged a, a young artist to actually turn some of these tools, like one is for uh, if you were targeted by racism, what can you do, into an eight-frame comic strip. And then the second one is on what can you do as a bystander. Oh. So it's all in comic, you know, so that in, because I know a lot of people these days like to read something in two minutes. So, yeah. um, so, <laughs> so and then the third one is for young people, preparing young people, going back to school, the, so, the social circle. So what can you do if, if someone actually uh, you, you encounter micro, microaggression, right? Your physical posture, what some of the things you can say, what can your peers do, right? So we put that into a comic strip with some explanation at the bottom because there's some certain strategies, right? Like document, distract. So we put those into the comic strip. The last one that we are working on right now is for seniors and people who cannot speak English. That's one of the things that we're doing is so if people can help us, because right now, actually, many groups across the country and including the Act um, Act 2, actually in preparation for this podcast, I actually did a little inventory of all the things we actually have developed. And we have developed quite a bit in a month time. Canada's first text message reporting line in seven languages. Oh, wow. Can you, can you let our audience know how they can text in? Yeah. So, report? um the number is uh, 1-507-587-3838. Well, I think maybe what I could do, I, I send you 
uh, some information because what we need to do right now, we have this innovative, community-friendly, culturally competent tools and resources developed. Now we're at the stage that we have to reach the people because yes. people have worked hard to make this happen in a timely way, but it has to reach the people. The, the media help with coverage, but then it has to reach the people. The people who currently don't fully understand what constitutes discrimination and racism. Mm -hmm. And they have a certain degree of discomfort to actually talking about it and reporting it. So we have to overcome all those barriers and then reach the, the communities is what we need to do right now. If anybody can help us. And then also, you know, I've been doing some outreach, additional continuing outreach with people in British Columbia and say in Manitoba. So I'm hearing some of the umbrella groups in, in those regions saying we need to provide people with resources we want to organize people to denounce racism yeah. but often at the same time people also feel that need to talk about the positive to raise awareness and remind people that asian canadians have been part of canadian society they have participated and contributed they are an important part of a society so at the same time people want to address and respond to acts of racism people also want to do something that more positive so I think that probably in the months to come, there will be different kinds of campaigns to help to raise awareness and appreciation, make people feel belong, right? Yeah. So I think that uh, when those come up, I hope that people can help to disseminate those information so that we can actually make those successful campaigns. And the other is, I think that what we're actually exploring is actually institutional engagement. If some of the chief of police have actually made a stance on anti-racism, why aren't the rest of the police chief across the country making yes. those stand? I believe strongly that our educational institutions, the leaders in those institutions, also have to actually talk about this so that they empower the young people to talk about it and give them assurance that when things happen to them, they can actually tell authorities. Unlike when my own children were raised, were growing up, when they were called names, mm -hmm. they are the ones who actually got called to the principal's office, not the perpetrator, right? Oh, yes, for defending uh, themselves. So we actually have to remind and support our leaders that you have to be anti-racist. You know, you have to, because by doing nothing and saying nothing, then we, you're condoning what's happening, right? I agree so. with that. Oftentimes people think that it's enough to not like what's happening, but I think it's time people take that extra step and be an anti-racist. Yeah. And I, I understand that some people might feel discomfort just talking about race in general, which is probably why some public figures haven't addressed anything. But now is an important time than any. Talk about it despite yeah. their discomfort, just the responsibility of the platform that they do have. Um, with respect to the reporting on Act to End Racism, the website where you can report and you can text through, I think that's a great idea. I agree that it has to be put out there so that people know about it and they can report it. And it will definitely be a challenge to reach the older generation, especially if they don't speak English. So maybe actually do that community outreach and education. They even have the function for people to verbally report. So this is to make it easier. You don't have oh. to go find a computer, go online, right? Yeah. So this is a phone. 
You can actually speak to it. You can actually type in different languages. Really, the tool is really to make it easy and quick for people to report, right? Bystanders can also do the reporting. So we've done our part in a way to find the resources to develop the tool. It doesn't do any good until it reaches the people. Not only that it's about reporting, but it also identifies people who actually desire some support. So we have partnered with organizations and we're looking for more partners in different parts of the country. Organizations like in here in Calgary, the Center for Newcomers, because they have so many staff that are multilingual to actually provide some support to people who actually feel that they need, right? So we actually have that kind of backup support in place, recognizing that it could be traumatic for people. I didn't know about that. That's great to hear that it's really well thought out. Social workers. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. And, and we're all collaborating and we're all helping each other because obviously not many people speak seven languages themselves. Or maybe there are people like that, but not me. <laughs> so, Teresa, do you have any final thoughts that you want to touch upon before we wrap up the episode? Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share with you what the network is doing so that more people can know about it and uh, help to disseminate the information so that the people who might benefit from it can receive it. Yeah, I think moving forward, I think one of the things that people have recognized is how we can all play a role. First, provide support to those being targeted, be aware of our social context, and not to let it deteriorate uh, during this difficult time. I actually recently watched the Asian American documentary, as the Asian Heritage Month event on PBS. It actually, it was scary because we are seeing so many signs of previous, um, this kind of, um, the kind of moving backwards. Exactly. Oh. So I think that we all have to be vigilant and mindful that we need to actually be more proactive, preventing from regressing because we've been making some gains, partly because a lot of the forms of Racism, discrimination is more subtle. People now somehow feeling more emboldened to actually act them out. Turn this challenging time into also an opportunity to really address these issues, name these issues, so that we could actually make more improvement on some of these social, social issues. I agree. Now's the time. Thank you so much for coming on. And again, very humbled that you even agreed for me to interview you. I will leave more information for the audience on Act to End Racism, the number to text, the website where you can be reached at in the description. And thank you to the audience for listening to this episode. And I'll catch you on the next episode.